Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand, and this is In Plain Sight, Episode 3. Jonathan Dick has evaded police for more than two years. Just how is a complete mystery? Several of Jono's childhood friends believe he's hiding alone somewhere in or around Melbourne. His mother seems to agree. But the cops say he's being looked after by somebody. Jono's friends, of course, know him better than the police do. And they're living in fear that Jono may be coming for them. Gareth Jones grew up in Wallen and attended nearby Whittlesea Secondary College with Jono. He was loyal to Jono and for years tried to help him, even though he worries about how Jono is thinking about him today. Do you remember when you first met Jonathan? Yeah, I do actually. So another friend I'd made from Wallen first, his name was Leonard. And um, the first thing I really remember about Jono was Leonard yelling out, what's for breakfast, Jono? Sausages? And the joke was a couple ways. Jono's dad at one stage owned a sausage factory. Jono's last name was also Dick. And Leonard at one point lived next to Jono. So that was my first real memory of Jono, is basically um, him doing his face at Leonard because Leonard's, yeah, always picking on him about sausages and his last name. Leonard declined to be interviewed, but he was just one of the group of mates with whom Jono mixed easily in those youthful days of the mid-90s. And he was popular and amiable. Yeah, he's a great guy. Absolutely great guy. Everyone had their place. Everyone had good friendships with everyone else. He got along with the girls all at school. He got along with the boys. Yeah, Jono was fine. He's very smart. How'd he go at school? I always thought if anyone went to university, it would have been Jono out of anyone. Uh, very, very clever, very good at maths, did maths specialists, all those type of things. He was always uh, the one that I would thought would have gone the furthest. Was he a gentle soul? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but getting angry for Jono is not really what I would call anger. It's more a frustration never had a fight in his life and not the one to go out not a bully not anything no no totally not so when i was young i used to think the freedom jonathan had to live in a back of a shed at the corner of the property was lucky because he could go anywhere he wanted no one knew if he was home or away you know there wasn't anyone really to care what he was doing so back then seems like a great thing to a young person. And now when I look back at it with older eyes, I probably see um, his father with two young children and a new wife and a new life and his son, older son from his last marriage, you know, um, out in the cold. So I start to see a pattern in Jono's early life as I speak to his friends. They all came from stable and quite ordinary backgrounds in Wallen. 
Jono's cave in his dad's shed was their escape, but for Jono, it was his everyday reality. He existed in a kind of limbo between his parents' lives. It's a theme in his life to this day. He never really felt like he fit in anywhere. What was his attitude to his situation? I can remember going to stay at his mum's house. Went to Back then there was the Fox Sky Show and Jono and I went to see that. Um, I can remember catching the wrong train. We were following some girls, talking to them, and we got on the last train to Frankston, not realising there was another one not coming back. It took the whole night to walk back to Malvern. Contrast that with your normal life. Oh, my gosh. There's not a chance in hell that my parents would have uh, not been dropping me or picking me up, or uh, if I was gone that long, I'm sure the police would have been called. (laughs) Paul Devitt was another Wallen boy. He was very close with Jono, and later they both worked together as plasterers. They shared houses together at different times into their 30s. So looking back now, it's pretty easy to see that he's always strange, you know, when you look back now, but at the same time, he was a happy-go-lucky sort of bloke, you know, as a kid, you know, like, he had a bit of a rough childhood. When I'd spoken to the detectives, they told me, oh, you know, a really tight family and all this sort of stuff, but he didn't really get along with his family at all, you know, like... I sort of said that to her, oh, no, no, we've spoken to them, they're all, okay, okay then, fair enough. But um, when he was about 13 or something like that, he had to go and live with his dad. She'd abandoned him, effectively. I think he felt like that, you know. So he sort of had a problem there. When he moved up to his dad's, he, he made a room for him in the shed out the back. And um, he didn't really get looked after by his old man the way his dad was remarried. There was another two kids that he had to the second marriage and... Um, just like an example, Christmas time, walk in to the house and there'd be 50 presents each for the two kids and, and nothing for him, you know? Like, So there was always, he had problems with his brothers for different reasons. He had problems with his parents for different reasons. Would he talk about those problems with you? Just briefly, it's, it was as if he had moved on from them, you know what I mean? But um, when he brought them up, it was like, I think he felt a little bit on the outer with his mum and his dad, you know. His mum wanted him to move out and and then when he got to his dad's, I don't think he was quite included the same way as the other two children, you know. Jono's friends rarely saw his father. There was a very different life going on in the house of which Jono was not a part. Jono's friends all fondly remember their days in the family shed. It was a meeting place and a refuge where the bond between them was forged. With all my mates, I've got an, another four mates that I still see on a regular basis now. That we've all been mates for 25 years. Jono was one of those guys. Um, you wouldn't see him for months at a time. And then when you did see him, he, he was really happy to see you, you know. And that only lasted about half an hour. <laughs> and then he'd had enough, you know. Like, he, And then he, he was quite happy to be back on his lonesome again. Jono was making some kind of progress in his life, albeit that he never reached his potential as his mother saw it. Despite his obvious intellect, Jono lost interest in schoolwork. Like a number of boys in Wallen, he went into the plastering trade, but he always had a curiosity about the world far greater than his workmates. When Jono was 20, his father moved his new family to Queensland, leaving Jono in Wallen. Jono moved from the shed to the main house, and Paul Devitt moved in. He began to see Jono gradually changing, becoming more withdrawn. Paul Devitt. I've never met a guy that 
couldn't stand people. You know, we'd get onto the subjects and oh, there's something wrong with that person, something wrong with, it was something wrong with everybody because they didn't think the way that Jono thought. He was like, a, his mind was like a steel beam. It didn't bend or move for anything, you know. His thoughts were his thoughts and that was the way that the world was and anything that contradicted that, he couldn't see why and he couldn't understand why, you know. Can you think back to the kind of how his life would turn out? Do you have those those discussions with him? Not really. We're just small town country boys, you know. Um, When we were working in Melbourne, that was the best job that either of us had ever had, you know. We're really appreciative of having a job on a union site, earning good money. Both of us had probably struggled for cash up until that point. We thought that life, that that was good. Most of Jono's mates were trying to find ways to get out of Wallen. David Camerata became a successful jeweller in the city. Gareth Jones started as a mechanic, but later retrained for a career in social justice. Paul Devitt was a plasterer like Jono and saw life in much the same terms. Earning a good dollar and being able to do things that you wanted to do. He never had any aspirations to sort of travel or do any of those sort of things. He was wrapped about buying the house in Ringwood. In 2005, Jono bought a house in Ringwood in Melbourne's East with his brother David. He was working as a plasterer on commercial developments in the city and was making good money. Outwardly, things seemed okay. That was one thing that he was really happy about. He wasn't so happy that Dave, his brother, wasn't able to make a lot of payments on it with him. There wasn't any real life goals, I guess, you know, like one day I want to do this or one day I want to be this. But then again, it's probably not that strange, you know, a bunch of five or six blokes. We're all the same, you know. We're probably happy to have a good job and own a house one day, maybe, you know. And that was, we're all the same like that, I guess. But there were already signs that things were not quite right with Jono. David Camerata found his lifestyle was strange. He's living up there in that house. He was living in Ringwood. What was the house like? Oh, well, it was disgusting. Uh, him and Dave lived there together. They bought it together. You know, he'd read the Herald Sun every single day. So there would have been, you know, maybe four or five stacks, probably six, seven foot high of Herald Suns. You know, bowl on the coffee table, cans everywhere. That's walking in. Heading into the kitchen, they had a fridge that broke down which I unfortunately opened one day when I was there, just looking for a drink. And he yelled at the same time, don't open the fridge. And the fridge had been off for months and they just bought another fridge. So all the food inside that fridge was rancid and, you know, disgusting and smelled like death. This type of thing, I mean, it, it was disgusting. The shower was disgusting, bathroom disgusting. In contrast, Jono's comic collection received pride of place. But oddly enough, there was uh, a one room in the house where he had his comic book collection. And the comic book collection was in a bedroom of its own. And um, he used to have these small square boxes that kind of looked like um, milk crates. And there's probably six, seven of them lined up, maybe more, in order. Everything was in line. Everything was probably in alphabetical order. The floor was super clean. The walls were clean. It was, it was quite bizarre. What were his uh, favourite comics? Yeah, the Punisher, X-Men, yeah, he was into the Hulk. Jono's world was getting smaller as his friends' lives were progressing and expanding. He wasn't making new friends and he had little interest in forming relationships with women. David Camerata. 
I tried to set him up on a, a date with a girl, which he, you know, flat out refused. And he would only ever wear sort of like plaster splattered clothes or X-Men t-shirts. And not that it's an issue either, I'm not judging for that, but maybe I'll set you up with this girl. We can go to the big market, you know, get you some clothes. Doesn't have to be like, you know, crazy expensive stuff, just to try and sort of see if you can get that momentum happening. And it was always just, you know, either a flat out no or, there's always something else or... What David didn't know was that Jono did once feel love for a woman. Jono and Emma Beattie were close at Whittlesea Secondary College, almost inseparable from day one. The first day of school, I can remember, you know, calling the role and our teacher in year eight, he said, Jonathan, oh, you're new, Jonathan, is there a name you'd prefer to be called? Jono... Johnny, you know, and he said, Jono. And I thought he was joking, because I thought, why would you say Jono? And, you know, if your name's Jonathan, it's John or Johnny, that's better than, you know, but, and then that was it. From then on, it was just, yeah, Jono. And then, yeah, we were just friends. Like, oh, he was just one of my best friends. And, you know, my family liked him, my sisters liked him. I don't know, he was just me and Jono. Like, it was just, yeah. He was the awkward kid from the posh school dumped in Wallen. She was the red-haired girl who wasn't one of the cool kids. Emma learnt to lean on him. What kind of memories do you have of the boy you first met? <laughs> you could just sit there, really, and say nothing. And what's so sort of ironic about it is that when you're in high school and, you know, you're unsure about, you know, everything, he was the person I'd go to to feel safe because you could just stand there and say nothing, but you'd be with someone and... That's the bizarre thing about it. It's the person that's done what he's done. It's just so far from who he was. It's just, it's a different person. Emma shows me photos from her school days. She and Jono with the Wallen crowd. He looks relaxed and friendly. His arm is often slung around Emma's shoulders. They're in cars and function halls, going to formals and birthday parties. Jono is fresh-faced and playing up to the camera. His hair is centre parted and hangs into his eyes. Or in later shots, he has the buzz cut, as he did on the day when he allegedly killed his brother in 2017. It disturbs Emma to think the boy in the old images is the same person carrying a samurai sword and who is now accused of killing his brother. If I could have, you know, described Jono in one word, I would have just said that he was normal and nice to be around. Like, he was someone who I liked being around. I don't have anything else to compare it to, so I don't know why we still, you know, want to keep in contact. I think we just liked each other. So what did you have in common? Um, nothing. <laughs> really nothing. Um, we both smoked cigarettes, <laughs> and so he didn't really have much money, so sometimes I'd give him money or I'd give him my cigarettes because I had a job. Different TV shows we liked. Sense of humour you shared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one? Uh, or Seinfeld. Just, yeah, comedy, funny TV shows was sort of the what we talked about. I have a, a million memories. and Just uh, leaving school when you have a free period and walking down to the shop and getting a bowl of hot chips and gravy, like just little mundane, everyday things like that that made going to school fun. Um, you know, it was fun because you got to hang out with Jono. Um, Everybody liked Jono because he didn't really complain about... He didn't have a go at anyone. He wasn't ever angry. He didn't get mad. He just... I can't think of anybody who didn't like him. So what do you think happened to him? 
I think that, yeah, drugs happened to him and I just think it changed the way his brain was wired. I think that that's it. Emma didn't go for marijuana as Jono did, but they remained friends. He was a constant in her life. She assumed they would be friends forever. When we were 19, we had been out at a party and we went back to someone's house. There was a group of us there and Joe and I ended up sleeping in one of the rooms and he was on the floor and I was up on the bed and we were just talking about life and everything and he said to me that he was in love with me and I sort of fobbed it off because we'd always had this platonic friendship where we just told each other everything and then he said em you don't get it i've never told anybody i love them before not even my mum part of me you know in my head i was thinking oh, maybe we could give it a go and see if you know we can go to the next level but i don't know why i just lied there and just said nothing like just absolutely nothing and went to sleep and woke up the next morning and just pretended it didn't happen not long after that i met my now husband and it was always a little bit awkward after that like you know the relationship changed and I always felt really sad about that because I really loved him so much I just didn't I just didn't love him that way. Did he ever have a girlfriend that you know of? He actually went out with my sister for about a month, maybe a a year or maybe two years later. Actually it it was after I got married um and that didn't work out she didn't like that he took drugs and he didn't like that she didn't like that so it just fizzled out and I don't know if it was just sort of maybe a way that he was sort of hanging on to the friendship that him and I had but it was you know her and I different people so it was never yeah she wasn't a substitute for you I think she felt that she was because she said that he would just want to talk about me and, you know, things that I'd done. I think that she knew that it was not going to go anywhere. Jono was still in Emma's life, but the appearances became more sporadic. She thought Jono was happy living with his brother in Ringwood in Melbourne's east. Jono was drifting away, but friends like David Camerata stayed in touch, trying to help him out when they could. David and Danny were renovating their home and asked Jono to do the plastering. He's said, I know you bought a house. I just stopped working at the Eureka because it's finished. Do you mind if I come do some work at your house? I said, oh, I absolutely love it. But yeah, I could tell that, that he had an anger in him, no problems. Like someone would ask to borrow his ladder, he'd get upset. Anyway, in the afternoon, I said to him, do you want me to go and grab you some dinner? He said he wanted a medium pizza. Down here they do small and they do large. There is no medium. So I got him the large pizza. I brought it back and he was up on the ladder down in the front room. I said, I got your pizza. And um, he's looked at it and he's like, what did you get me? And I said, they didn't have a medium, so I got you a large. And he just lost it again. He's like, I don't fucking want a large pizza. I said, a small pizza. And I said, listen, if you don't want it all, just throw it in the pin. It's like they put too much stuff on it. And he kept saying that over and over again. They put too much stuff on it. Put it on. I said, listen, you want to eat it? You don't want to eat it? By this stage, I'm starting to, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to take so much shit. I said, um, you don't want to eat it, whatever. Throw it in the bin, you know. But uh, that's it. That's all, you know, sort of thing. David Camerata considered this was the end of a long friendship. He'd done everything he could for Jono and felt that he'd thrown it back in his face. 
Paul Devitt knew John O'Harbert a deep grudge towards David over the plastering job on the house, the same house where John O later allegedly tried to kill David. I spoke to both of them on different occasions in the months after that happened. Dave was pretty offended with the way that Jono had spoken to him. Jono was offended that he'd done everything that he could to try and get this house ready for him in the time frame that he'd been given and was still getting pushed to try and get it finished. In 2010, Jono and his brother David sold the house in Ringwood and Jono moved back to the Wallen area. He contacted Paul Devitt, with whom he'd worked on building sites. I was pretty surprised when he sold Ringwood that he wanted to move out. He rang me up and he was like, you want to move out, you know, into a rental? I was living with another friend at the time and I thought, yeah, why not? And he seemed pretty happy with the situation for the first three or four weeks. <laughs> but then things began to turn strange. Yeah, I'd come home of an afternoon and I'd hear his door close in the hallway. Like, he must have been up in the lounge room or, or whatever. And as soon as I'd come home, he'd go to his bedroom and he wouldn't come out until I'd left again the next morning. So you're living in the same house as someone and um, and you wouldn't see him for a week at a time. It was a pretty strange situation, you know. Uh, Would he ever explain those absences? We'd talk about different situations and he, he'd say that um, oh, I'm just a miserable bastard, you know, like, and I'd always put a positive spin on it. I'd be like, no, it's all right, you just got different views and you don't agree with the way that society is. And I'd always try and put something positive on it, you know, but... He was probably right, he was just a miserable bugger, you know, like... But at the same time, he was me mate, you know, so... I had to get out after the 12 months. It was, um... It wasn't a happy place to be. Um... It was just an air of sadness in the place, you know? Like, um... I think by that stage, he, he wanted to be by himself. And I was quite happy for him to be. After they moved out of the rental, Jono bought his own house in Seymour, 100 kilometres north of Melbourne. He didn't know anyone in town, and it seemed that seclusion was one of the key attractions of the house. At the time, I think I'd lost my job probably about three months before we moved out. And, um, and I wasn't able to pay any rent. He was like, that's OK, no problems, just, you know, as soon as you've got it, we'll fix it up or whatever. And, and I owed him about three and a half grand for, uh, for rent at the time. And it was about three months of tax time and I said, I'm not going to have it till then, you know. And he told me that he was going to slit me throat with a trowel, <laughs> and, uh, which I laughed at because it was Jono, you know. He's, this bloke's never been in a fist fight in his life. Like, it wasn't a bad bone in his body as far as I was concerned, you know. And I said, well, if that's the way you want to go about it, I said, then, you know, we can go out the front and have it out. But I said, if that's the way you're going to do it, I'm not going to pay you the money. And he left. Ten weeks later, I went up to his house in Seymour and I ended up giving him four grand. He was like, it wasn't that much. I said, it doesn't matter. Consider it interest, the extra bit, you know. And he said, I'm real sorry. You know, he apologised profusely about what he said when he came over. And I said, don't worry about it, mate. Like, he said, I've, just, I've been doing it real hard, you know. I said, oh, well, now you know the situation I was in, you know. And... Um, yeah, I think I only ever saw him again, sort of twice after that. Jono retreated from the world into this house in Seymour. It was a bit like his man cave at home in Wallen, but now he rarely saw anyone. He could barely put food on the table as he tried to fix his dilapidated house. He'd really struggled, you know. Whatever money he had left over after he brought it, he'd done the roof, um, the stumps, and I think that's about as far as he got. He'd done little jobs around Seymour. I think one of them was making bullets. 
to some guy, but it paid $45 a day or something. And I think he picked up little plastering jobs here and there, but he was always struggling, you know. When I went up and paid him the money that I owed him, he, he told me that he'd been eating Wickbeaks for breakfast, lunch and tea. And when Paul did see Jono, the deterioration in his mental state was obvious. One night, he came up for a night. We had a drink and we had a pretty big night. And He brought one of his friends up and at about 11 o'clock, he turned around and realised that he'd been gone for 10 minutes. And he left his mate there and we went out and his car was gone. We called him up and said, where are you? He goes, I'm driving home. What are you driving home for? I'm not too sure, you know. Like I said, we well, could come back and get Jigger because you've left him here, you know. And he came back and he sat down and he didn't say anything for about an hour. And then he turned around and he said, you blokes are all gay, aren't you? <laughs> we, we started laughing. We thought he was joking, you know. But he, he wasn't. He goes, you know, that when I asked you that night, he goes, that was true, wasn't it? Like, you blokes are gay, aren't you? Go, no, Johnny. We're not, mate, you know? Like, and this is when I started to realise this is the first time that I noticed that something was going, going not right, you know? He said, well, I think my brother Dave's gay. I go, no, he's not. He'd always had girlfriends, mate. They're always really good-looking chicks. And, like, no, there's no way he's gay, Johnny. And he goes, well, he goes, OK, anyway, I've got some more questions to ask. He goes, yeah, OK. But I remember when he was leaving, I go, was that it? Or he goes, mate, he, as he was walking out, he goes, it's the tip of the iceberg of what I'm been thinking, you know? He couldn't work out the difference between that and what reality was. Another of the Wallen boys, Gareth Jones, visited Jono and Seymour around this time. It struck me how far away from everyone or anyone he knew it was. I didn't think it was beyond him, not at all. I could understand why he um, went that way, but it wasn't until one night um, I started to think differently. What happened? I think Jono came around one night, maybe nine o'clock, and he told me he just remembered something from when he was young and um, it was about a babysitter him, Simon Dave, had who was murdered. And this was a friend of the family's and it was a good uh, friend. And he was telling me how um, she was murdered in the 80s and all this. The murder of 23-year-old Beth Barnard on Phillip Island in 1986 is remembered for its savagery. She'd been stabbed repeatedly and her throat cut. Jono was eight years of age at the time. Uh, Jono felt... Like something that was coming back to him, how he was somehow involved. And there was an uh, old 90s program, like hard copy or something. And there was a whole episode on that. And yeah, it was quite believable. It was surprising to remember such a horrible thing. But this lady, was he knew her name and he was a babysitter for her. So that was, you could dismiss that as a proper memory? Yeah, why not? until he kept coming around with again and again. The third time he came around was really what set the alarm bells coming off. Um, The third time he came around, he was uh, saying, do I remember when we were in high school when um, me and him and about 16 other people flew to America? And I said, no, what are you talking about? And he said, I remember we um, went to fight the Wu-Tang Clan and that's a rap band from the 90s and I'm like laughing at him and saying how ridiculous this was and of course this is when I'm twigging something's wrong. This used to go on and on and John used to come around with these stories 
I used to say to him, you realise there's more going on in your life than in a fictional book. You know, if you came to me with one of these stories, I would believe you. But I said, the fact that every time you come, you're telling me something different, it can't be right. I'm worried that I'm laughing at you and one day I'm going to laugh at you and you're going to get really angry because I don't believe you. And every time these stories and things would happen, he was always so calm and he'd go... Yeah, I see what you're saying. I just don't agree with you. It's these memories that lead Gareth and others to believe that Jono is living rough, that his mental condition would not allow him to be with others. Gareth believes he honed his skills for living on the streets long before he became a fugitive. Jono just used to turn up, um, always late at night, and sometimes he'd be soaking wet. He'd walk through the paddocks, he'd just come off the train. I'm like, where's your car? Oh, no, it's got bugs. Where have you been? Oh, I've been in Melbourne. Why haven't you been home? My house is bugged. The car's bugged. Where have you been? I've just been on the streets. Well, how long have you been doing that? Oh, just a week. Then he'd come back and it'd be the same thing. How long have you been gone? Oh, just a couple of weeks. And then sometimes he'd come back. Oh, how long have you been out there? A couple of months, you know, and this went on for uh, quite a while. As things got worse and worse, Jono continued to reach out to his old friends to try to make sense of his chaotic thoughts. Emma Beatty was one. He rang me and said, can I come over? And I was at the shops and I said, look, meet me at the shops because I thought, you know, that was a better thing to, you know, meet in public. He had said to me that he was having thoughts about killing people and that's when I just, yeah, just thought, no, I've got to stop this, like... Nothing specific, you know, we were in a public place and there were people everywhere and he sort of just looked around like, uh, I'm having thoughts about killing people and just looking, uh, you know, at random people that, that we didn't even know. This was all happening at least five years ago and two years before he allegedly murdered his brother. That someone could be looking after him all this time seems unlikely, but no one seems to know how Jono is sustaining himself. Gareth Jones. When he did talk about going off grid previously, did it give you any insights how he how he did it then? I, I, I wish now I'd asked more questions. I never asked enough questions. Sometimes you're dealing so much with the issue that I'm not sitting there asking about his life, but I never thought it was going to end up here. I thought that there was going to be a person who's self-destructed, but I didn't think it would be more than his own life. So, I'm led to believe that a paranoid schizophrenic on the verge of self-destruction can hide on the streets for more than two years without being noticed, while planning attacks on his friends. It's an appealing notion, like something out of a horror movie. But then I think of David Camerata's description of Jono during the hammer attack. Super calm, focused and in control. Able to patiently plan his attack at a high level. Scruffy but not dirty, like someone who'd been living under a bridge and scrounging in bins at night for survival. There's another piece to this story, and in episode four, I close in on the truth. In Plain Sight is a real crime production, written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Shand. Listener.